кадре, который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. According to the Biden administration, Russia and Iran are developing a full-scale defense partnership that poses a threat not only to Ukraine, but to Iran's neighbors as well. It's an axis of rogues and autocrats that goes far beyond Iran providing the kamikaze drones that have been used to attack Ukraine's cities and energy infrastructure. It also includes trainings and weapons development, and the assistance is flowing both ways. The European Union this week imposed new sanctions on Iran in response to its support for Russia, as well as for its brutal crackdown on dissent at home. So how deep does this partnership go? What threat does it pose for Ukraine and beyond? And what can the West do to counter it? Well, stick around because I got just the guests to unpack it all. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funk Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington, D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood is Alon Behrman, senior vice president of the American Foreign Policy Council and author of the book's Digital Dictators, Media, Authoritarianism in America's New Challenge, and War of Ideas, Theology, Interpretation, and Power in the Muslim World. Welcome to The Vertical, Ilan. Great to be here. Thanks. Bit, bit, bit of an exchange here. I did an event at your place. Now you're, you're, you're a parent of, uh, in mine. Uh, and also joining us from New York City is veteran journalist Michael Weiss, news director at the New Lines Magazine, contributing editor at the Daily Beast, and director of special investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Michael is also the author of the book ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror, and is currently working on a new book, book about Russia's GRU, which we will discuss later in the program. Welcome back to The Vertical, Michael. Thanks, Brian. Happy Thanks. to be here. Happy to have you. So, um, so U.S. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said this week that the relationship between Russia and Iran is becoming a full-scale defense partnership with an unprecedented level of military and technical support that is flowing both ways. Ilan, I know this is your wheelhouse, and you and uh, and I know this from our conversations that you and I have been having offline that this is something you're concerned about. What exactly is happening between Russia and Iran? How is it different? than what had been happening in the past, and how worried should we all be, not least of all Ukraine? So uh, I, I think that's really the $64,000 question, and the answer is we should be uh, rather worried, and it's not necessarily that new. Uh, what is new is that the power balance in the partnership has really shifted. So in order to understand this, you have to go back a couple of decades. Uh, the Russians and the Iranians have been collaborating for a long time. The staple dynamic in the relationship for a long time has been that the Russians have been the senior partner, the Iranians have been the junior partner. The Russians used their permanent seat on the UN Security Council, used their uh, convening power on, at, in multilateral fora to really carry the water for the Iranians, to dilute the effect of international sanctions, to uh, effectively uh, make Western pressure on Iran uh, with regard to its nuclear program, Western pressure on Iran as a result of its sponsorship of terrorism, uh, less effective. Um, and so for a long time, that power dynamic was very clear. But Ukraine has really reconfigured everything. So for the first time, what you're seeing is that 
the Iranians now have the upper hand. The Iranians suddenly are the senior partner. And rather than Iranian officials and Iranian ayatollahs going to Moscow to bend the knee and ask for diplomatic assistance or defense assistance, you now see the opposite dynamic. You now see Russian officials going to Moscow uh, requesting assistance for a very unpopular war, assistance that Iran is among the very, very few uh, partners of Russia that's prepared to provide. Do we need to start looking at Iran as a combatant in this war, given the role their drones are playing in the attacks on Ukrainian cities and infrastructure? So I, I would argue yes. Um, and that's, I think, emerging as the prevailing view in Europe as well. The, to me, one of the most profound uh, shifts in opinion uh, on Iran has been uh, what's taking place in Europe. Um, over the last several weeks, you've really seen a, a dramatic hardening of European rhetoric about Iran, and it has everything to do with Ukraine. Uh, the Iranians are still very much interested in a revival of the 2015 nuclear pact known as the JCPOA. Uh, a lot of sort of that uh, thinking has not changed. What has changed in Europe is this understanding that the, the Iranian regime is now all in on Vladimir Putin's war against the West, and as a result, it needs to pay consequences. Unfortunately, there is a little bit of a disconnect between what the Europeans are now saying about Iran and what we're seeing out of the White House, at least so far. There uh, isn't really this sort of synchronicity about the need to hold the Iranians accountable to a greater degree because of what they're doing with regard to Russia. Yeah, I mean, Kirby's announcement actually seemed to be moving in that direction. But the thing is, I, I just can't wrap my head around how much more we can sanction Iran than we already are. Right. So so I, I think there's a, a clarification that needs to happen here. We certainly have this raft, very comprehensive raft of sanctions uh, already levied on Iran. Um, and there's in that sense, you're, you're absolutely correct. There's not that much more that we can do. Right. We can tighten the screws on Iranian financial transactions. We can freeze a few more accounts. But these are really tactical steps. But what you see is that the uh, U.S. government's Iran policy, at least for the moment, is running counter to holding the Iranians accountable. And, and what I mean by this is you're not seeing the White House remove sanctions against Iran. But what you are seeing is a very lax attitude from the Biden administration on the enforcement of existing sanctions. And the aggregate net effect of this is that there are countries like China, countries like India, that are consuming Iranian natural gas, Iranian oil, without uh, really feeling like they need to worry because they're vulnerable to the sanctions, because sanctions implementation has effectively stopped. So okay. we're robust on paper, flimsy in practice. Gotcha. Michael, you are one of those rare analysts who is fluent in both post-Soviet affairs and the broader Middle East. How do you view this Russia-Iranian axis we see emerging? Well, I mean, as Ilan was saying, it's, it's not exactly a new phenomenon. Um, when Russia intervened in Syria directly in 2015, uh, there was a lot of back and forth between Moscow and Tehran. I know that, you know, there was a bit of sort of revisionist take on whether or not Qasem Soleimani, the then commander of the Quds Force, which is the Revolutionary Guard Corps' expeditionary arm, went to Moscow to personally persuade Putin to intervene in Syria. It seemed that Putin was already had already made up his mind he was going to do it. However, um, there is no doubt that without Russian air power, uh, Iranian militias, Iranian proxies on the ground, including and especially Lebanese Hezbollah, but also militias that have been built uh, for the sole purpose of propping up the Assad regime, would likely be toast by now. Uh, Russia's intervention in Syria decisively turned the scales of that or tide of that war in favor of the, of the Assad regime. So that was a security partnership, whether or not you want to call it a full-fledged alliance at that point. 
that I was paying very close attention to. And I mean, look, I'm old enough to remember when a lot of seemingly clever people in Washington were trying to persuade me that there's no direct evidence that the IRGC is backing the Houthis in Yemen and sending them advanced weaponry, including uh, short-range ballistic missiles of the variety that Iran is now um, set to send to Russia, according to the latest reporting in Axios, citing uh, Israeli intelligence. So uh, in a way, I mean, you know, Francisco Franco is still dead. That's what this story means to me. But yeah, it is, it is, it is sort of a, an interesting development, as Ilan was, was alluding to, that the, um, the, the client-patron relationship, if you like, has, has somewhat shifted. I mean, Russia, let, let us be clear, is still very much a far more uh, significant power in geopolitics than, than Iran. Iran is a regional power, but one that, that punches well above its weight. Uh, however, you know that, that Russia is increasingly reliant on Iranian tech and military kit uh, is fascinating, and it just goes to show how much they have squandered in this disastrous war of conquest in Europe, uh, and also how much I think you know their bright, shiny new military, which you and I have talked about at great length, right. Ryan, is not quite what it was sold to be. Uh, meaning, right. their air defense systems don't work as well as we were led to believe. Um, their rockets don't meet their targets the way that they were meant to, including, you know, their, their, their top-of-the-line precision-guided munitions. Um, so, yeah, you know, whereas the Iranians, I think, are very effective on a much um, reduced annual budget. Uh, you know, you, you need only ask U.S. soldiers who were based in, um, in uh, al-Assad Air Base in Iraq when they were rocketed by Iranian munitions, uh, seemingly in retaliation for the Trump administration's assassination of Qasem Soleimani, that these rockets are fierce and they meet their targets. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's, I mean, Elon probably knows a lot more on the Iran file than I do because I haven't been keeping as close attention to these things as, as perhaps I should. But, uh, you know, the, the fact also that Iran is now, you know, kind of coming out of the closet, as it were, as, as a power that is not afraid to back Russian um, expansionism, Russian colonialism in Europe, uh, exacerbating tensions with the EU and certain European nations that hitherto have been a little squishier on Iran, certainly within the last four or five years than the United States. That that relationship, too, or that dynamic, uh, too, has, has now reversed, as Alan was saying. I mean, you've got elements in the Biden administration who want to essentially restore what the Obama administration had couched as its signal foreign policy accomplishment, the JCPOA. Uh, and then there are those in the Biden administration who are still very hawkish on Russia, who think, you know, the scales should have fallen from everyone's eyes, that, uh, you know, Putin is who he is and, and Khamenei is who he is. And now this is indeed kind of a, an emerging axis uh, that needs to be confronted um, in, in a unified manner. Um, but yeah, I mean, the short answer to your question is uh, this is not a, a, a terribly newfangled phenomenon, at least by my lights. Yeah, I mean, you say Francisco Franco is, is, is still dead. Um, I mean, it. so you, should I take this from Lincoln? You're not as concerned as Elon is about this, this oh, access? I mean, or... I, being not as shocked does not be, okay, be gotcha. concerned. I, I do think there needs to be a more concerted effort to contain and deter both countries. I mean, even, even accepting what Iran is doing now in, in Ukraine, what they have done in the Middle East and how they've eaten America's lunch for it uh, in terms of the projection of uh, hard power and national security interests. Uh, again, Syria, I spent 10 years covering that conflict, watching in real time as Iran essentially built itself 
satrapy. This was not security assistance, properly speaking. This was not military intervention. I mean, there are aspects of the, the Syrian regime that are now wholly owned subsidiaries of the IRGC. Um, so I've been advocating for a long time we need a, a much more robust counter-Iran policy. Um, but I, you know, that, that to me was like screaming into the same void or abyss as saying that, you know, this guy Vladimir Putin has revanchist expansionist aims and, and will need to be countermanned and deterred uh, before he does something really stupid and, and bloody. And well, look where we are yeah. there too, you know. So it, it's not that I'm not concerned, I just, you know. It, yeah. It's not, we we all we all know the feeling of of uh, screaming about Putin's revanchism before it was cool and being uh, dismissed as alarmist. Um, Ilan, I wanted to. I mean, we we know some of the, how this how 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 the nuts and bolts of this access works, right? We know some of it. We know Iran is providing these drones. Can you dig kind of dive deep into the nuts and bolts of this? Because like Jack Kirby in, in his comments talked about kind of mutual assistance, training. How, how does this thing work? How is this alliance shaping up in practice? Right, well, and uh, sort of to amplify what Michael was saying, um, one of the things that I'm the most concerned about is what Iran's assistance to Russia in the Ukraine war tells us about Iranian military development strategy. Because what you're seeing very clearly is that Iran is not a country that incre increases the sophistication of its weaponry and then holds on to it. This becomes an export commodity almost immediately. This becomes a way for Iran to spread its asymmetric influence. And we saw this uh, in the context of Iranian drones, even before they, you know, before Europe woke up to the phenomenon, we saw this in the context, uh, for those of us that were paying attention, in the context of the Yemen conflict, for example, or, you know, sort of tactically in places like Syria and Iraq. But what we now see is that the West is waking up to this notion that an increasingly military sophisticated and belligerent Iran is actually one that's prepared to act extra regionally, and it's prepared to provide its weaponry to any and all comers, because uh, Iran sort of very much, you know, what's the old saying that, you know, when you lie, do uh, lie down with dogs, you wake up with fleas, right? Iran right. doesn't have that many military partners. Russia has been very good to Tehran uh, over the last two decades. Um, and now the sort of the bill has come due. And so that strategic cooperation is deepening, but it's deepening against the backdrop of an increasingly militarily formidable Iran in term, in right. defense industrial terms. And, and that should be concerning. Should we be looking at this, and this is the bolt of you, I mean, should we, if you look at who is with Russia in this conflict, who is providing real material assistance, it's basically Belarus and Iran, right? Belarus is allowing them to use their territory. Um, with, there, there's talk of Belarusian forces entering, entering but I don't, I don't I, frankly, I don't think I see that happening. Um, should we be looking at this war in a broader sense where, where it is, it's, it's against this kind of broader axis of autocrats, uh, Russia, Iran, Belarus. Should we be kind of reframe how we're thinking about this? I, I, uh, I think that there's a lot of merit into having a precisely this discussion on a policy level, not just sanctioning Russia directly for its aggression, but uh, applying secondary sanctions, secondary lever levers of pressure against countries like Belarus, against countries like Iran, that are complicit in amplifying what Russia is doing. Right. That's a conversation we're not having yet. But my sense is that uh, it, it's very sort of very useful and also very logical for our discussions of what's happening in Ukraine to go there. Uh, Michael, you wanted to say something. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you'd ask a very provocative question is, does Iran's assistance to Russia make it a combatant in the war? I mean, I think Belarus has been a combatant in the war from, from day one. <laughs> their military bases are used to, well, you know, 
bivouac Russian occupying forces. They've been launching cruise missiles and Russian aircraft have been taken off from Belarusian uh, you know, airstrips. Um, yeah, and, and the will they, won't they with respect to Lukashenko? I mean, I agree with you. I don't, I don't see him going in because I think that would effectively spell the end of his regime, which has already been teetering on the brink of collapse since before February 24th. Uh, however, yes, I mean, do the, do the Ukrainians have a right to fire back into Belarus uh, and take out military infrastructure with which the Russians are, you know, raining terror down on their cities? Absolutely. By the way, um, the Ukrainians have the right to uh, take out IRGC trainers who are currently stationed in Kherson and Crimea, training up Russians on how to use the uh, Shahed Iranian mm -hmm. drones, you know increasingly, shall we say, irritating to, to the Ukrainians, even though they've now, I think, managed with their bolstered air defense capability to, to uh, intercept them. But, um, you know, the other factor in all of this, um, which I'm very intrigued to hear Elon's point of view on, is uh, where do the Israelis see themselves uh, playing into the Ukraine war? I mean, you know, the government has been, the Israeli government has been very, very reluctant to do, well, frankly, quite a lot that it could have done from day one. Uh, in Ukraine, including providing advanced uh, weaponry, air defense systems. By that, I don't even mean Iron Dome, which is kind of a non-starter, but, you know, other other kit in their arsenal. Uh, my supposition, my hypothesis would be that given the IRGC's role in Ukraine and given the intelligence haul that the uh, certainly Mossad would, would, would love to get its hands on to see what they're up to, that Israeli intelligence is now working much more closely with Ukrainian military intelligence. Now, again, I can't confirm that. I, 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 that's just a hunch. But I, I would be very surprised if it were otherwise. And I, I also think, frankly, if things develop along the path that we've laid out here, um, the Israelis will, might actually get over their their sort of uh, you know hiccups about providing lethal assistance mm -hmm. to Ukraine. I mean, obviously, the the, the 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 fact that Iran is giving shorter range ballistic, tactical ballistic missiles to Russia, not the longer range kind, owes to, to two different things. One, fear of the snapback at, of sanctions at the UN level, because I think that violates one of the provisions in the, the current agreement. And, and two, um, you know, I think they're worried that, you know, if the Israelis get involved in this, then Iran will be fighting, you know, its its Cold War against its, its little Satan enemy on multiple fronts, including, you know, on the streets of Europe, which is right. probably something that Iran given the current political climate in that country, can afford or, or really wants to do. So I think it's, it's also trying to keep, um, I don't know, you know, it, it, to, to manage the escalatory ladder as best it can here, um, however much it wants to back Russia, you know, out of ideological or geopolitical principle. Right. So the conflict seems to be metastasizing in directions that we, we had not foreseen in the beginning. Ilan, I want to go to you on Israel because I know this is something you want to talk about. It's something we've been talking about offline. But before we do that, I was wondering if there is anything more the U.S. and the West can do in terms of interdiction of, you know, of, these, of these Iranian weapons that are getting to Russia. Could we be more uh, forward leaning in that regard? Well, we could always be more forward-leaning in that regard. And and here, right, if there is a silver lining, it's the fact that uh, what Iran is doing in Ukraine in, in, in the context of supporting the Russian military offensive and, and sort of bankrolling uh, with material Russia's military aggression uh, is something that the Europeans are keenly aware of. And uh, what we're talking about now is we're talking about transfers of equipment um, that at least partially transit European territory. So there is a role... Uh, for the Europeans to play a much more active role in terms of interdiction. It, it, but but um, there is a, uh, 
um, there is a, a European role uh, to play here, right? And there is a conversation to be had between Washington and Brussels and other European capitals about what a uh, not just what a interdiction mechanism looks like to prevent Iran from supplying these this weaponry, but what uh, sort of w how that plays into a larger uh, containment context, right? But but it, it, it's all nested in the larger discussion about you know changing European attitudes towards Iran. Uh huh. Okay. And on the Israel piece, how do you see? I mean, sure. Because I've been following this. It's a bit of a head scratcher. I mean, it seems logical that Israel would 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 give uh, offensive weaponry to Ukraine and as well as air defense systems. They they've been reluctant to give the the Iron Dome. My understanding is they're afraid they're afraid it's going to fall into enemy hands. I'm wondering how much is this moot now that the U.S. is going to be delivering Patriots um, okay. to 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 Ukraine? That was announced yesterday. But how how do you see this whole Israel piece, Lauren? Well, to, to me, this is this is really uh, fascinating. It's also a conversation that's in motion. I remember being in Israel uh, at the end of January, uh, right uh, sort of right before things got hot in Ukraine, and there was a lot of uh, Israeli speculation at the time, uh, and a lot of Israeli agnosticism, frankly, at the time about uh, which side uh, Israel should should fall on. Uh, oh. And the arguments you would hear at the time was that you know Vladimir Putin may not be philo-Semitic. But Vladimir Putin is the least anti-Semitic Russian uh, and before that Soviet leader uh, in, in sort of in recorded memory. And therefore, Israel uh, should try to sit on the sidelines as much as possible. Uh, that argument has sort of fallen by the wayside uh, and it fell by the wayside under the last government. Um, but still, there was some trepidation to taking a more active role because all politics is local. And the Israelis were concerned first and foremost about their northern front and the fact that Russia is a key partner, key enabler of the Assad regime. So the worry uh, in Jerusalem was that, you know, take too, uh, too much of a forward-leaning role and what you end up with is a destabilized northern front. Um, I think that concern uh, has, has also fallen by the wayside largely. Um, paradoxically, Iran, by wading into this conflict, has mm -hmm. liberated Israeli decision-making um, which previously was constrained. And I would only make two additional points here. Uh, first of all, uh, we talk a lot about Syria as being sort of the driver of Israeli policy and, and sort of Israeli reticence. Uh, I think that's partially true. I think there's a domestic context here as well, right? Israel is a country of uh, 9.4 million people. 15% of that population uh, is made up of Russian speakers. There is a huge domestic constituency uh, for Russian messaging to the point where Russian uh, politicians, when they campaign during, you know, sort of when, when things are normal, when they campaign, um, they uh, they run ads on Russian language channels in Israel itself, mm -hmm. right? Because people who have dual citizenship and they can go back and they can vote. Um, and so for a long time, there was this, the, the Israeli approach to uh, responding to what Russia was doing in Ukraine was couched uh, in this, uh, you know, the need to sort of to mollify a, a domestic constituency. Um, I think we've sort of crossed the Rubicon now. First mm -hmm. of all, you, you're, uh, there's, you know, this was the last government. There's a new government coming in. We still have to see how their, um, how their policy is going to shake out. But increasingly, Iran, by wading into this conflict, has made this a conversation about Iran. And it's liberated Israel, I think, in a, in a really strategically mm -hmm. significant way. So do you think, I mean, Israel's instincts were to side with Ukraine, but all of these other constraints were, were preventing it from doing so, and now those constraints are falling away? Is, is that what I'm hearing you say? So Israel's free to be itself now? I, I, I think so. I, I think so. Uh, the, the way I would like to frame it is uh, Israel is increasingly free 
to do what it knows it needs to do anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of, uh, because, right, because there, there's all sorts of sort of uh, moral and ideological considerations that Israel as the world's only Jewish state has, you know, in terms of considering what's happening in Ukraine, particularly against the backdrop of uh, Russian war crimes and, you know, uh, mm-hmm. attempted genocide, things like that. Um, but the domestic realpolitik of having Russia right next door, having Russia, you know, be at least partially responsible for Israeli security for a long time has sort of constrained the gotcha. Israeli response. Mm-hmm. Now you're seeing that increasingly that's less and less of a consideration. I wouldn't say it's not a consideration, but it's racked and stacked, I think, very differently, particularly now that Iran has entered the fray. I mean, also some of, I mean, Russia's rhetoric cannot be playing well in Israel at all. I mean, this, all of this claim about Ukrainians being Nazis when they're, to my knowledge, the only country in the world other than Israel that has a Jewish president. Um, right. And, and so this is well, the Russian loose... government caricatures in anti-Semitic fashion on Twitter. Exactly right. Who the Russian government, act, that, that, that's correct, Michael. The Russian government actively characters as anti-Semitic. Michael, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I agree with the notion, and it's been true of, of even vehement critics of Putin, that, that he is the least anti-Semitic um, president or leader that, that Russia's ever had. But he's also so shameless and cynical that, that he knows that if he has to kind of dip into that old folder, which goes back right. hundreds of years, and, and play the role of, if not a pogromist himself, then somebody who is endorsing other pogromists or allowing them to become fellow travelers of his ideological mission, uh, he has no compunction uh, as to, in, in terms of doing so. I mean, he, will, he will do it. Uh, Russia partners with neo-Nazi parties throughout Europe, right. uh, far-right fascistic parties as well uh, that might not even classify as, as Nazi parties. And, and, and you know, yes, the, the, the trope of, of calling a Jewish politician a Nazi himself um, you know, I mean, the Israelis are certainly well versed and experienced in, in that sort of line right. of polemical argument, and I think they recognize it for what it is. Um, but yeah, I, I broadly agree too that, you know, you, you hear a lot this sort of excuse making, and I've heard it from people who will go to Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, come back and say, oh, well, you know, it, you know it's really about deconfliction in Syria. Is it though? I mean, you know, like, I, I, I sorry, it just reminds me of the kind of bullshit I kept hearing around 2012, 2013, you know, Bashar al-Assad has the most formidable air defense systems and, you know, he, I, no, he doesn't. And the Israelis walk in and out of Syria like it's their backyard uh, and with, with nary uh, a, an untoward incident or, or interdiction of IAF aircraft and all that. And I'm sure that, you know, if the Israelis were really concerned about uh, what would happen to their ability to take out Hezbollah you know, weapons convoys or take out IRGC militias in Syria. You know, the one thing the Russians are quite good at is they can compartmentalize. And to give you some evidence about this, uh, and this is something I, I, that I am deeply fascinated by, and it's, it's, it's incredibly hard to report out. Look at Turkey's role in Ukraine, right? I mean, we all know that, that Erdogan, president of Turkey, and Putin have a weird sort of bromance, stroke, frenemy kind of relationship. Um, they see each other kind of in, in similar terms. They're both authoritarian. They're both strong men. Uh, they both have a contemptuous view of Western culture. Certainly their perce- perception that we're all a bunch of, you know, depraved, you know, libertines of a- 84 different genders and, you know, wokeness galore and all the rest of it. I mean, they share that general conceit. And yet, dot, 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 um, when Russia through the, the Wagner mercenary corps, but also just broadly Prigozhin's political technology apparatus backs 
General Haftar in Libya, mm -hmm. a former CIA agent, no less, um, against the UN-recognized government of Libya, which the Turks have backed. Essentially, the Turks find themselves in a state of proxy war with Russia, where Turkish Bayraktar drones are completely destroying, you know, pan-seer Russian air defense systems on the ground, you know, in the service of a, a Libyan warlord. Similarly, Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, you know, Armenia was, I don't even know if, if the, uh, you know, the, the Collective Security Treaty Organization still exists. It sort of seems to have evaporated. After, after that incident, yeah. no. But, I mean, Armenia was a, a signatory member of that alliance. Uh, Russia did not re leap to its defense, even when the Azer Azerbaijanis were attacking inside Armenian territory, not in, you know, uh, NK. And here again, you had a strange situation where the Turks were hammer and tong for the Aliyev uh, regime uh, against a Russian client state, um, right? And similarly in Ukraine, Turkey has sent, and this I have confirmed, upwards of 50 Bayraktar drones to Ukraine, right? They, they had already had about a dozen or maybe a little more at the start of the war. They increased the supply. Uh, and whether or not that's just um, you know making good on contracts outstanding, doesn't matter. They, they were still at risk of doing so by antagonizing Moscow. Turkey is also doing a lot of things that we don't know about, uh, including, well, some of which are now beginning to come to light. Uh, it was reported by Oryx, which is a very good open source intelligence um, website, and one of the guys, guys who runs it seems to have very close ties to the Turkish military industrial complex. Turkey had provided laser-guided artillery rockets to Ukraine before, underscore, before U.S. provided HIMARS mm -hmm. were in play. Okay? They did not advertise it. There was no public uh, fanfare about it, and the only way it was found out was that it was, I think, geolocated in, in the field through open source and then reported by this, this block, right? What else has Turkey been up to helping the Ukrainians? From what I gather and what I'm hearing from sources in Kyiv, quite a lot at the military level, at the intelligence level, and also at the diplomatic mm -hmm. level. And yet, they haven't really antagonized Putin, have they? You know, I don't hear feverish denunciations of, you know, the Anatolian tiger coming from the Russian Foreign or Defense Ministry. In fact, Erdogan has positioned himself as sort of the grand champion of peace, the, the, the main interlocutor right. or diplomat to, to, to kind of end the war. So there's a lot of room to maneuver here. And I think right. the Israelis, frankly, you know, for the first time, actually, in terms of their security policy, suffered from a failure of creativity and imagination. Mm. And I, probably that's just excuse making, as Alan was saying, which maybe right. is now by the way, no, what the lesson here is there's a lot of cross-cutting both rivalries and alliances. I'm very mindful of the time because Elon needs to go. Unfortunately, Elon needs to leave us now. Uh, but in a few moments, Michael and I will continue our discussion and provide a little sneak preview of the book he's currently writing on Russia's super secretive military intelligence agency, the GRU. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's Dowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an Assistant Professor of Practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining us for the first half of the program from Washington, D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood has been Ilan Berman, Senior Vice President of the American Foreign Policy Council and author of the books Digital Dictators, Media, Authoritarianism in America's New Challenge, and War of Ideas, Theology, Interpretation, and Power in the Muslim World. Thanks for joining, uh, Ilan, and good luck getting to your next meeting on time. So okay. I kept 
taking too long. <laughs> Not at all. Thank, thank you, Brian. Thank you. And sticking with me from New York City will be veteran journalist Michael Weiss, news director at the New Lines Magazine, contributing editor at the Daily Beast, and director of special investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Michael's also the author of the book ISIS Inside the Army of Terror and is currently working on a new book about Russia's GRU. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the Power uh, Podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And for the time being, you can still follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности гоним вас. С новым веком. So, Michael, you literally wrote the book on ISIS back in 2016, and I've been waiting anxiously for your new book on the GRU, which you're currently researching and writing, um, waiting for that to come out. So no pressure, and that's from someone who is also way behind on his own book. Um, but to get us started, why did you choose this topic? Why write about the GRU now? So I was watching cable news uh, sometime in 2017, maybe 18, when you know the Trump-Russia investigation was pretty much the only story dominating the airwaves. And time and time again, I would have people, um, many of them, you know, declaring themselves experts in Russian intelligence matters, sort of, uh, you know, make this suggestion or the assertion that, uh, well, the, the GRU, which is the Mueller investigation, has indicted members for, officers for, for hacking into the Democratic email service, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, you know, it's, it's the old KGB at it again. And I was like, well, no, it's actually not the KGB, um, right. about which there have been, I mean, a, a, a sort of Alexandrian library worth of texts written uh, both from an academic analytical point of view, and of course we have memoirs from defectors and you know just simply retired officers. But the GRU, the the, the redheaded stepchild of the KGB, um, in many ways, as you said earlier, is kind of one of the most opaque and secretive services in the in the world. Although I would argue in recent years it's become very transparent, uh, much to its chagrin, thanks to the work of Christo Grozev at Bellingcat and, and you know the U.S. government. But um, I wanted to kind of delve into the history of this organization from the very beginning. Uh, it turned 100 years old in 2018. It was founded in 1918 at the prompting of Leon Trotsky, who was Commissar of War at the time, who actually, and, and to get at the very heart of the matter here about the GRU's sort of um, storied rivalry with the other services, Trotsky, one of the, the main motivations for Trotsky was he not only wanted a, a military intelligence service for the Red Army, but he also wanted to compete with Felix Dzerzhinsky's Cheka, right? And, right, and civilian intelligence apparatus, which um, was, you know, very peremptory and, you know, sort of running running the show in, in, in ways that were probably to the detriment of Soviet military capability. So I've gone back to the very beginning, um, you know, the Russian Civil War, um, one of the seminal events is actually the Soviet-Polish War. Mm -hmm. uh, Lenin essentially tried to export Bolshevism at the end of a bayonet uh, and failed uh, at the, um, you know, thanks to the resistance of, uh, of well, not Marshall then, I think. Well, it might have been Tukhachevsky. Uh, or, sorry, Pilschutsky, uh, uh, excuse Pilschutsky, me. Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, the point is that th that conflict gave the Soviets 
a great deal of knowledge about the uses of partisan warfare, uh, sabotage operations, assassination campaigns. There's a German word I'm not going to even try to pronounce, although I probably will have to when I go on book tour, um, that translates as decomposition, which is essentially sapping the morale um, and esteem of the enemy through uh, active measures, you know, disinformation, propaganda, all the stuff that we talk about nowadays. Um, the Soviets really kind of came into their own or re realized the importance of in around 1920, 1921. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, one of my working theses in the book is in the 1930s, uh, the GRU was probably one of the most premier intelligence services in the world. Um, certainly uh, ran circles around the NKVD, which ended up poaching a lot of their talent and personnel. I mean, because there's been a lot of cross-pollination between the services. You know, during the Cold War period, it was very characteristic for the director of the GRU to have come from the KGB, just so that the, the Big Brother service could keep an eye on what the, right. the military guys were up to, right? But in the 30s, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I deal with a lot of people who I guess are not very well known except to subject matter specialists, but guys like Walter Kravitsky, um, Ludwig Koretsky, better known as Ignaz Reiss, who was murdered by the NKVD when he defected from the regime. I mean, most people don't realize, but like one of the most famous spy sagas in American history, uh, one which elevated um, a, a then little known representative from California by the name of Richard Nixon into the national spotlight, furnishing the way for him to become vice president, was the Whitaker Chambers Alger Hiss case, right? Mm -hmm. Alger Hiss who is a high-ranking State Department official. There's a photograph anyone can Google of the Tehran conference where Hiss is literally sat next to FDR across a giant circular table, at the other end of which is one Joseph Stalin. Well, turns out Alger Hiss was a spy for the GRU, mm -hmm. stealing State Department documents and passing them along to the Soviets through a, an apparatus that in, in Washington, D.C. And anyway, this spy drama, for the longest time, in the popular imagination, people would just say, you know, Soviet agents or Soviet espionage. But in fact, it wasn't the KGB, um, or back then the, the NKVD, it was the GRU that ran these two guys, right? So my, my goal with this book is to try and, in a way, um, I mean, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not glamorizing the GRU, quite the opposite, but, but give them their due in history, um, because they were consequential in certainly deciding the outcome of a lot of uh, American-Soviet relations. Um, I mean, I, you know, the subtitle of the book is How They Changed the World, which it's kind of a bit of a cod history subtitle, I understand, but you know, it, it's true. Uh, they did a lot of atomic espionage, uh, quite apart from what the Rosenbergs got up to. Um, you know, they, uh, you know, they they recruited a lot of agents who went on to be handled by the KGB, including at one point members of the Cambridge Five, when that apparatus had kind of fallen apart in the UK. It was a GRU officer who was responsible for sort of picking up the pieces until the KGB came back into, you know take care of their own um, British moles. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's essentially, it, it sort of skips through a hundred years of history, mostly through the prism of case studies and biography. Because I'm, I'm mostly interested in human drama of it all, less so organizational hierarchies and structures and all of that. I mean, if you're interested in that stuff, you can read Suvorov's right. books on subjects, which are now a bit dated, but still very useful. So I'm interested in like, what motivated people to usually back then, become a member of the Communist Party or go to work for the Comintern, which was usually a clearinghouse and, and feeder service into the GRU, and then ultimately be recruited by military intelligence. And the fascinating thing is most people didn't even know who they were working for. They knew they were working for the Soviet government. They just didn't know which spy agency it was uh -huh. until they defected and were told by either defectors, other defectors, or the U.S. government or counterintelligence 
um, agency. So, yeah, I mean, it's been – this was supposed to be done in a year. It's taken me so far almost four. But the reason uh-huh. it's taken so long, I kind of have gone down rabbit hole after rabbit hole after rabbit hole trying to suss out as much as I, I can. Don't we all yeah. know that feeling? I, I wanted to drill into a couple of things about the GRU. I mean, the GRU's corporate culture, if you will, is known as uh, as uh, they are they are the risk takers. They are the cowboys. They're the punks. Uh, yeah. They're the ones that are going to take chances, as opposed to uh, more more so than the other services. Are you are you coming across? Is that kind of shining through in your research? Absolutely. I mean, you know, part of it is just it's a very simple explanation, and which is um, most GRU officers tend to be uh, former soldiers, right? Um, they they, right. they are now uh, recruited almost entirely from the ranks of the the Russian army, so they have a soldier's mentality. You know, if there's an obstacle, break, bust down the door. You know, just right. dismantle the obstacle. Whereas you know, and for speaking in contemporary terms, uh, well, the FSB is a whole other kettle of fish. I, mean, I, I just right. think of the most crooks and thieves, um, similar to United Russia, as Navalny would call it. But, um, you know, the SVR, for instance, which is the, 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 the successor to the KGB's first chief directorate, which was the Foreign Intelligence Foreign Arm. Intelligence, yeah. guys tend to be gentlemen spies. They tend to be very civilized, well-educated. The GRU guys are, are also well-educated. I mean, one of the hallmarks is they speak multiple languages. It's, almost, it's a requirement to become a GRU officer. However, yes, the, 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 the stereotype is the GRU guys are a little more brusque, a little more daring to the point of being foolhardy and reckless uh, and self-destructive, as, as we've seen. These are the guys who got their picture taken all over Europe trying to assassinate Sergei and Julius Skripal with Novichok. Um, they did manage to get away with quite a lot, though, before they were unmasked, including uh, poisoning Emilian Gebrev, who was a Bulgarian arms dealer, who befell probably Novichok, definitely some kind of nerve agent a year before, two years before Skripal was, was, was poisoned. They've blown up arms depots and, and weapons storehouses in Bulgaria, those belonging to Gebrev himself, but also Czechia. Um, operations that only came to light, what, seven or eight years later, when counterintelligence kind of pieced it piece it all together. So, I mean, one of the the, the lines I I heard early on in my research, um, which I I quite like and is going in the intro, is um, John Seifer, former deputy director of Russia House at CIA and longtime CIA uh, officer with Russia as his specialty. I once asked him, I said, you know, in your experience, give me the difference between GRU and the other services. He said, well, the GRU is like the, the, the guy who goes into a bar and propositions for sex every woman that he meets, right? Nine times out of 10, he's getting slapped in the face. He's being embarrassed or humiliated. But on that 10th try, he's going home with somebody, you know? They throw everything they can up against the wall. There's almost a culture of recklessness built in, uh, in that, you know, quantity uh, far exceeds quality. If they get caught, if they get burnt, if they're compromised, rather than, you know, be utterly humiliated with, they get cushy gigs, just they can't travel through Europe again. They, they, they get, you know, sinecures in, in, in other parts of Russian Federation territory. They absolutely get orders of merit or very high-ranking um, medals, some of them bestowed personally by Vladimir Putin. So, you know, there's almost this sense of impunity, like, you know, we, we don't care if you know what we've done, because we know that our government is A, going to protect us, and B, going to play sort of tricks and games with the West. You know, I mean, if you look at the Russian response to some of the things the GRU has done, including hacking Democratic Party servers in 2016 with an eye towards trying to sway the then U.S. presidential election, 
I think Sergey Lavrov had sort of the best line about this, which was, you know, we didn't deny it, but you didn't prove it. So no. wink and a nudge. You know what we did. We know you know what we did. But we're going to play games about what it could have been, come up with conspiracy theories. There's sort of a, a built-in tweaking to these operations, mm. which, which is actually kind of newfangled. Back in the day when they screwed up, it was a big embarrassment. People got sacked. People got, you know, I mean, well, some of them even got purged in 1937, primarily for ideological or perceived ideological reasons. But there were consequences. Today, I'm sure there are consequences. There's, you know, something goes in your personnel file. But there's a sense that they can almost just get away with anything, which has made mm. them far more um, risk-taking, far more uh, dangerous, frankly. I mean, one of the things that, that came to light in this book, uh, when I, I spent several days in the company of Christo Groza Bellingcat, who essentially has unmasked now all of the members of GRU Unit 29155, right? That's mm -hmm. the... That's the special task unit of the GRU, the assassination satellite. That's the that's the death squad. That's the death squad, yeah. And he said to me, you know, based on and, and I won't get into sort of the kind of elaborate methodology Christo uses to figure out who's who and what they're up to, but suffice it to say it's it's largely to do with travel itineraries. Uh, once he understands that these passports are fake and belong to GRU operatives, he then figures out what they've done based on where they've gone, right? Whether it's for reconnaissance or, you know, in the case of poisoning people trying to commit murder. And he told me that as of, and this was 2019, he's like, as of 2019, maybe early 2020, based on the travel itinerary of all known members of Unit 29155, he only knows about 15% of the operations they've conducted. So that means 85% of what this death squad unit has done over the past 10 years or so remains a mystery, or certainly not publicized and, and acknowledged by any Western government. That is terrifying. Arson, right. things written off as arson, accidental deaths, uh, industrial accidents, explosions, all of that could well have been Russian acts of state terrorism that we simply don't know about. So it, it's a weird sort of paradoxical thing. On the one hand, we see the GRU as sort of the keystone cops of the Russian special services, right? Always kind of getting caught, you know, tripping over their own feet, stumble bum activities, that kind of thing. But on the other they are forced to be reckoned with, and we can't quite write them off as buffoons because they're they're not. They they can be quite effective when they when they hit their mark. Well, there's another way that they're kind of coming into their own in the post-Soviet period, and you alluded to this earlier, Michael, when you said kind of the the KGB kind of kept tabs on the GRU in the Soviet period. But now yeah. the KGB has been broken up. It's been broken up into three units: the FSB, the SVR, and the S and the FSO. Right? The right. GRU wasn't broken up. Has this no. created a situation where the GRU is getting the upper hand now in the, in the inter-service rivalries? Well, I think, you know, what happened was it was it was kind of at an endear uh, right after the 2008 uh, Russian-Georgian War, right? The, the, their performance was seen to be incredibly poor, lackluster, and there was a kind of um, a, a rehabilitation or an effort to try and rehabilitate that service. Um, where they really began to shine again, at least by the lights of Vladimir Putin, and I guess his inner circle, was the takeover of Crimea in 2014. I mean, almost a flawless military operation. I mean, the, the, the going line is, you know, this was a near bloodless seizure of an entire peninsula of territory. Now, granted, they had plenty of military infrastructure and assets in place, thanks to the, um, you know, the positioning of the Black Sea fleet at Sevastopol. But still, it was an operation. It was largely orchestrated by the GRU and GRU Spetsnaz. Um, 
And I, I think ever since then, they've been, I mean, it's it's hard to say, Brian, because, you know, a lot of this stuff is still a black hole. And, you know, it's not like I can go right. to Moscow at the door of the aquarium and say, show me all your archives. I'm right. going to read this book. But it does seem like they have, have kept their own uh, with rival services, particularly the FSB, which is also, I mean, as we know, you know, Andrei Soldatov and Irina Borogin, our friends um, who are uh, subject matter experts in the, the Russian special services now living in London, uh, talked about the role that the FSB's Fifth Service played in gathering intelligence in the lead up to the invasion of Ukraine, and also how bad that intelligence was, mm-hmm. whether for reasons of you know personal graft and thievery and corruption, or simply because they weren't doing their job effectively. The GRU now, according to Andrei and Irina, have essentially inherited the file of the Fifth Service. Right? They are the ones now responsible for leading intelligence efforts in in this faltering war. Um, but you know, I would I would argue by w- without any question, with no doubt, in the last 10 to 15 years, the gloves have come off. They have been emboldened in a way that they hadn't been probably since about the 1920s or 30s when they were doing expeditionary activities, including attempted coups throughout Europe, um, Germany, Hamburg, 1923, uh, Estonia around the same time, Bulgaria. You know, insurrection was kind of the 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 then going foreign policy of the common turn and behind it, the GRU was then known as the fourth department. Um, and, and it was led by a guy, Jan Berzin, who was this kind of Latvian uh, artillery off, I'm sorry, Latvian rifleman um, who became a real uh, specialist in partisan warfare. And one of the fascinating things about that I've learned in researching this book is, you know, if you go to the, the Spanish civil war, which was a seminal conflict in the heart of Europe, a curtain raiser, arguably, for World War II, certainly in terms of the, the symbolic importance it took uh, or, or took on for a whole generation of communists, particularly British communists. I mean, you know, we Kim Philby cut his teeth as a, a, a deep penetration um, operative for the NKVD in, in Civil War Spain, posing as a, a pro-Franco journalist for the Times of London. Arthur Kessler was arrested by Francoists in Malaga and imprisoned and sort of learned the sort of master-slave dynamic of uh, warden and prisoner, which informed his subsequent book, uh, Darkness at Noon, one of the probably the best anti-communist novel ever written. Um, you know, George Orwell, uh, obviously, famously, in homage to Catalonia, fought, fighting on the side of the anarchists. But nobody has ever actually looked at who was running uh, Republican Spain military apparatus, right? We all think of the KGB Alexander Orlov as sort of the nastiest comer of, of you know, uh, Stalinist-run Spain. In fact, the GRU was sort of in charge of basically running that war, which was in many ways, I mean, obviously, you know, accepting the fact that Russia is now kind of on the other side of, of um, right. you know, a, conqu- a war of conquest or insurrection in Europe, very similar to what we're seeing in Ukraine. Um, you know, it was the GRU that were, was responsible for training up uh, Spanish uh, generals and military officers. The GRU was coordinating with uh, Soviet uh, pilots and tankists who were bringing in tons of material to help prop up the Republican war effort. So, you know, what I'm seeing in, in 2022 in a large way is kind of a replication uh, of uh-huh. what throughout the, the 20th century. Uh, and I haven't even got into World War II yet um, or, you know, the, the, the Cold War era. I mean, um, Afghanistan, the GRU played a role in addition to the KGB, uh, uh, 
you know, and other uh, military elements, uh, to be sure. But like, it, yeah, it, it, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. And, and again, there has not been a definitive history of this service written. Um, you get memoirs, you get snatches here and there. So the, the difficulty has been trying to kind of, from this pastiche of different pieces of literature, put together a, a cohesive, right. cohesive view of, of who they are and how they've evolved, or in some cases, devolved. Anything surprise you? We always run into surprises when we do research. Anything, anything in your travel surprise you on this subject? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if surprise is the right word. I mean, I was kind of flying blind, so I, I started with this sort of non-knowledge of who they were and a desire to figure things out. I, I would suppose that, you know, I mean, we've all, we all know about the rivalry between the GRU and the FSB and the SVR, but there, there have been areas of cooperation, um, including very significant ones. In the 1930s, there was um, the Spiez Hotel, which was a, a unit, a SIGINT unit that was built largely at the, uh, the orchestration of Jan Berzin, who was then the, the head of the, the GRU. But it was a joint GRU-KGB signals intelligence uh, gathering department, actually based not in, uh, in, in the headquarters of either intelligence service, but out of the Soviet foreign ministry at the time in Moscow. And uh, this unit was responsible for hoovering up all kinds of valuable intelligence, including about uh, Japanese war aims with respect to the Soviet Union, which was then at the time a huge obsession of the Soviets because right. they always feared that Tokyo was going to invade uh, you know, Eastern Russia, and that had a huge bearing on Soviet calculations with respect to World War II. A lot of the stuff, if you read uh, Christopher Andrew and Oleg Gordievsky's book uh, on KGB, uh, a lot of the things that have been posthumously attributed to Ricard Zorgay, perhaps the most effective and famous GRU agent uh, or officer ever. Uh, this was the guy famously who was based in um, Tokyo and had so infiltrated both the Japanese military establishment there, but also the German foreign ministry. I mean, he was effectively running the, the Nazi German embassy in Tokyo for a time. And also, by the way, sleeping with the wife of the then German ambassador. That's a different story. Um, so a lot of the things that had been posthumously attributed to Zorgay were, in fact, the result of signals intelligence gathering, which was also, as I said, a kind of hybridized GRU KGB thing. So that surprised me because, again, we don't hear about the cooperation. We don't hear about any kind of fraternal relationship between the, the, the services. We only hear about their their enmity toward each other. Right, um, right. Yeah. So do you have a working title and an estimated date of arrival? The working title, uh, which I proposed and my publisher um, fell in love with, although now I, much to my regret because I'm not entirely convinced of it, is The Glass House, which is mm -hmm. another the GRU apart from the aquarium. Right. My concern with that is the glass house sounds like a Nicholas Sparks young adult romance novel. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe that'll help with book sales. Maybe not. But you know, I, I don't know. The, the longer I sort of marinate in it, the more I'm okay with it. But um, I like the it. other title that I had liked, which um, I'll, I'll tell you the title and I'll tell you the criticism was Trouble with the Neighbors. So the neighbors is usually what uh, the NKVD and the KGB would refer to the GRU as. Um, and uh, so I, I like that title. But somebody told me that it sounded either like a, a Seth Rogen buddy comedy or like a horror movie. A horror movie would have been good because it kind of they're, they're asked, GRU got up to no good. It does terrorism. It does, you know, explosions. It does murder. But, uh, anyway, Glass House is. is uh -huh. no, I, I, I like that title, actually. Um, and when 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 can we when can we look forward to being able to read this? No um, pressure. 
Well, I mean, uh, manuscript is I'm, I'm about 60 to 65% done. Um, and I'm hoping to be completely done um, probably by the spring. Okay. So I think next fall it should be uh -huh. out. You know, and, and, and look, the weird thing about this is every time I, it, it's like Corleone and Godfather 3, every time I think I'm out, they pull me back in. Like, right. war happened when I was, I had a, an outline, and the war upended everything. Tell and then me I about stopped it. doing, stopped doing And then, you know, and then I, you know, for instance, uh, I get a call from, from Talon a few months ago, and you come uh, in, in as soon as possible. Oh, what you, what's going on? And they said, uh, you know, we have something for you. It'll be good for your book. So I knew it was something GRU related. And lo and behold, it was a story of a guy, a GRU agent, Mark Tim Zinchenko, who was arrested in 2017, unmasked by Capo, Estonia's top law enforcement body. Tried, convicted, sentenced to five years, and then traded back to Moscow a year later. Well, he just defected to Estonia. Why? Because of war in Ukraine, which he is adamantly opposed to why because well he thinks it's barbarous to begin with but he's also got ukrainian family members his, his name suggests he has ukrainian blood yeah and yet i mean digging into this guy's history it was fascinating to see why the gru had recruited him in the first place his uh, his grandfather sorry his great-grandfather was a member an officer of smersh you know the the, the famous kgb counterintelligence unit propped up by stalin in World War II, didn't last very long, but boy, did it get up to no good, including uh, arresting Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Um, uh, and yeah, so he had this kind of like Czechist intel pedigree. And he was a, you know, a young kid, 19 years old at St. Petersburg uh, University there. And, uh, you know, a guy approached and, and said, oh, I hear you go back to Estonia, you know, like next time you go, bring me a souvenir, a bottle of vodka or a postcard. And from there, he was hooked and he thought he was going to be a Russian James Bond and instead it ended in ignominious humiliation, uh, you know, upended his whole family life. He's got a wife and three kids. And he's, but it's the first time in history, at least that we know, and I checked with Cold War historians, first time a Russian intelligence officer, or sorry, in this case, an agent, has been caught by a NATO member country, uh, tried, convicted, traded back to Moscow, then defects uh -huh. to the country that nabbed him and into the arms of his former antagonist slash jailer which was uh -huh. extraordinary so that's going in the book too well, I, I, cer I certainly hope so yeah um and so anyway i mean it's just it's been i don't know I, I i joke with my publisher it's like oh you know you thought you were born buying like a quickie airport you know read and instead i'm giving you like a robert caro-esque right. you know <laughs> which i don't know maybe uh, that that's that's a high bar to, to, to live up to but anyway that's if I want to do this, I want to go back to the very beginning and be as comprehensive as possible. So that's kind of my goal. Well, when this comes out in the fall, we'll be sure to have you back on to talk about it when I will have okay. had the benefit of reading it. <laughs> so so, so, so like count, on, count on that. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. All right. Well, on that note, we're bumping up against the end here. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you that you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me in the first half of the program from Washington, D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood was Iran Behrman, senior vice president of the American Foreign Policy Council 
hustle and sticking with me to the bitter end from New York City has been veteran journalist Michael Weiss, news director at New Lines Magazine, contributing editor of the Daily Beast, and director of special investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Michael is also the author of the book ISIS Inside the Army of Terror and the forthcoming book The Glass House. Um, which is about Russia's GRU. Michael, thanks for an enlightening discussion and making us all a lot smarter. Anytime. And I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Dylan Holberg is ably filling in for Lance Ligas in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. Dylan also handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power of Couple Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and SoundCloud, and tune in. If, if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review, because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter, at least for now, at Power Vertical. The Power Vertical podcast will take a two-week hiatus for the holidays, but we'll be back in action in the first week of 2023. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.